I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement and the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. today where we cover current issues facing law enforcement forensic crime scene investigation i'm your host dan zintek joining me today we have co-host chelly rossi bloodstain expert crime scene investigator so uh, starting off this week i wanted to make a couple of announcements that we have uh, so the tdii uh, which is the texas division of the iai made an announcement yesterday they're supposed to have a conference june 16th to 20th uh, that has been canceled uh, due to the COVID crisis going on, and um, they've decided not to have the conference this year. So next year it is going to be in Frisco, which is north of Dallas. Uh, as far as the parent organization, the IAI is still planning on having their conference as of yesterday, uh, which is happening August 9th through August 15th in Orlando, Florida. So they're still keeping up on that. Normally, they accept registration in April. Uh, they've delayed that, just trying to get their heads wrapped around um, if we're going to continue with this and what we're doing. So registration at this point should start in May. Um, that being said, and, and moving forward with that, um, there is uh, the presentation deadline has already passed. February was the presentation deadline. However, the deadline for getting photo uh, and poster contest in is July 31st. So if you have any uh, posters or photos that you want to put into the uh, contest at the IAI, then just go to theiai.org and look for the poster or photo presentation. You can sign up and send that in. So hopefully that'll still continue and we'll keep you up to date on that. So I brought uh, Chelly in today to talk. She's been to a couple of conferences lately. I know we just talked about that. And you know, one question sort of to address is, is why to go to some of these conferences. A lot of people uh, believe that it's uh, to go and just uh, spend some time and they dismiss the value in the, in the conferences, and I usually like to describe them that once you've obtained your basic courses, once you've obtained uh, just the basic needs to do your job, that a conference is where you're gonna find the latest information, the latest technologies and procedures, and just the latest news in your discipline. So uh, that being said, uh, Jelly, you've been to a couple of more recent conferences. Uh, I think the... Um, uh, I think the last one, or I should say last one, the uh, International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts was in October, November? The end of October, 1st of November. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. And so you are now the president of that organization. I am. Yes, sir. So uh, in that, uh, I pulled up sort of what happened in, in 2019 there, and, and just to give you an idea of, of different things that happen in these conferences, for one, the networking is amazing uh, in meeting people that have the same disciplines and being able to have those conversations and also have those contacts afterwards to follow up on. But some topics that were covered just at the IABPA on the conference schedule, give you an idea of some things that go on at the conferences, uh, latent fingerprints under blood, how they can be recovered, uh, the head is a source of blood spat, uh, spatter, dynamic shooting incident, directional analysis, uncertainty of measurement, three-dimensional documentation analysis, cast-off stains, and then, Shelly, you had done one on understanding the accreditation. So uh, if you could just speak a little bit as far as 
um, the IABPA and what they do and sort of what the latest thing going on and what's happening in, in the bloodstain world. Sure. So the great thing about a lot of conferences, the IABPA, uh, we just had the um, Crime Scene Reconstruction Conference in Reno right before all of the travel bans um, were getting underway. But when we were at the IABPA, it truly is amazing because, you know, there's only so many courses, like sit-in-the-seat courses that are offered in any kind of region. So when you get to a certain level, after you've had your introductory 40-hour class, you've had an advanced class, you've had, you know, a level three class, you've had, you know, some of your, what we would consider foundational coursework in bloodstain, then you start getting into some really, you know, big classes like um, fluid dynamics, math and physics, as it relates to bloodstain pattern analysis. And those courses are taught, you know, by either um, educators from universities or um, from people that don't live in the United States. So when they do bring a class to the US, it may be one class, it may have 12 seats in the class, and it may be in Southern California, or it may be in upstate New York. And so um, getting a seat in that class and then getting funding to travel you know, to that location to, to take that kind of coursework sometimes is challenging for agencies uh, you know, because the, the cost to attend that class is expensive. And so the great thing about going to conferences such as bloodstain pattern analysis or crime scene reconstruction is you can interact with the, your colleagues um, from other countries or other parts of, of this country that are pursuing um, some advanced technology. Like um, a friend of both of ours, Eugene Lissio, is um, Canadian, and he has, is doing amazing stuff with scan data and all different platforms of scanners, um, but focusing on spatter patterns and cast-off patterns. And, and so he's got um, students that are doing research you know, that he is, is a part of, and, and so they are really putting out some valuable research that correlates to actual scene work. Um, you know, there's kind of two parts to research, right? There's the academic research that, you know, talks about droplets in flight, and, you know, and while that stuff is important, sometimes that stuff doesn't translate into going to the crime scene and being able to extrapolate data um, that you can then testify to. And so what Eugene is doing is absolutely paramount to crime scene work and understanding what data you can derive from those types of patterns and then how to make it, um, you know, how, how to have the, the scientific basis um, to back up your, you know, your analysis. So now he's developing software for this or he's just putting in the data into, I guess, Excel? I mean, what is, what is he doing with the current data he's collecting? So he is um, creating mechanisms that that create different types of patterns, so like cast-off patterns or spatter patterns, and then using the scan data and using plug-in software that 
um, measures the ellipse of the blood stains, and then um, creates a 3D model of of those patterns, and then you know deriving data from from those patterns from that scan data. So, like um, some recent papers that he's published are on like a cast-off pattern, and can we identify where the the mechanism came was you know was located in a three-dimensional space. So say you've got an offender, he is yielding a baseball bat, he is creating, you know, these cast-off patterns by bludgeoning a victim. Can we using droplets and using the you know the ellipses, their area of origin, you know, or can we develop an area of origin based on that? Um, historically you know, cast-off patterns really didn't yield us an area of origin, um, and I think Eugene's really getting close to being able to visualize where where a person was standing at the time they were. So what else do you think he has to do? Is there just more research to be done, more data to collect that it meets, like, happens so often? Or, I mean, what would you say has to be done before he can say, yes, this works, right? You know, the, the he did a presentation at the Crime Scene Reconstruction Conference, and... You know, when you start looking at all of this modeling that he's doing, I think that that, um, you know, th there is a lot that we can do with cast-off patterns, and you can really start to visualize where, you know, where the axis is. Um, you know, I, I really think that he's done a, an exceptional job at, you know, kind of diving into that and, and having enough, um, you know, test, test patterns that, you know, and as a scan data, you know, as we, we really learn what our scanners can do um, and, you know, the, the technology that goes into, you know, like the... Um, as far as mapping it out and such? Yeah, like the, the packages that go into on how we capture, you know, individual patterns um, and then being able to put that into a 3D modeling program. I think that that's... Um, really come a long way, even in just the time that, you know, Montgomery County started using a scanner. So now is he using different scanners? He's using, I mean, the two common ones I always hear of is Leica and Faro. Sure, right? yep. And so he he works a lot with the Faro, um, and, you know, because it's easy for him to take that on the road, and and so he travels with it, um, and then that's what we use in a, in a classroom setting. So that's going kind of back to your original question. That's another benefit of attending these conferences because people like Eugene, you know, travel with their scanner. And so when you don't just sit in a presentation or in a, you know, four-hour workshop and just listen to, you know, how he, you know, how he came up with his data, he actually has a scanner there. You create a pattern, you use a scanner, scanner and then you use a computer software to build your own product. So it's it's very much a hands-on um, opportunity for people that may not have the opportunity to travel, you know, um, to these dedicated classes. So what do you think is, is sort of the defining moment of what your research has done to be accepted? Is it, is it the peer group? Is it like the, you know, a BPA saying that this is accepted, that we all agree that, the, that you've done enough work on this, or is it that a court has accepted is a combination of both. I mean, what really is that defining like, okay, this, we can use this now? 
So we talked last time that I was here a lot about the Texas Forensic Science Commission and what they were doing. And so it, um, you know, as, as the court cases are challenged as specific forensic disciplines are challenged, then that basically puts those, you know, like say for bloodstain, right? Um, bloodstain came under the Texas Forensic Science Commission's microscope back in 2016, 2017. And so they really started looking at, okay, who's testifying to it? What training and education do they have? What is their foundation? What should be required for someone to be able to testify to this discipline? And as we look at that and as we kind of um, really start to break that down on, okay, you know, can anyone go to a class and get a certificate? Is, is that, you know, is that what is acceptable? No, it's not, right? I mean, sitting in a class, you know, just like we have seen, you know, in this career that, you know, people can read a book and take a test and get a certificate. But not that, actually practice it, not actually go to the that, scenes. And correct. And that, that doesn't mean that they're proficient in their craft. They're, they're just good at, at reading books and taking tests. Um, but it doesn't mean that they can then demonstrate how to properly apply, that knowledge. apply it. Um, and so those are types of things that, you know, currently we are working to establish, okay, you know, yes, the classroom foundation is important. You have to have the classroom knowledge. You have to have the hands-on knowledge. You have to have practical application, okay? But there's also other things that kind of are required. You know, you have to have an understanding of statistics. You have to have an understanding, understanding of physics when dealing with blood stain. Um, you have to know how blood behaves on different surfaces, right? Non-porous surfaces, porous surfaces, how it behaves on fabric. So those are all things that that we are looking to standardize to say, okay, this is what we expect you to have in order to testify in a Texas court. So uh, speaking of like the, the Canadian research that's going on for the cast off, is that something that he would then have to present before some type of forensic science commission to be accepted? Or it sort of when you're doing something new, I, I guess, like I was saying that uh, at what point or, or what what would be the steps for him to have his study validated, I guess? Sure. So he has, um, a lot of his stuff has been published in um, widely accepted peer review publications like through the American Academy of Forensic Science, um, through the IAI, through the IABPA. So, you know, the International Association for Identification, which you mentioned earlier in your announcements, through the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts, you know, through the American Academy, uh, they have a, a journal of forensic science. Um, and so those are all peer-reviewed publications by subject matter experts um, that ha has a pretty rigorous vetting process. Um, and so, I mean, it's published work that an analyst could use to defend their analysis. So uh, now one of the presentations that you did at the last conference was, I guess, the, the certification uh, process, the accreditation uh, process. I know you had just gone through that here in Montgomery County. So um, I guess in general, uh, what's, what's the basic requirements or, or things like that? I don't, I don't know another way to put it, but if I'm sitting in an agency right now 
okay, and I say, hey, I would like to have this accreditation, um, what do I need to have before I even start that process, or can any agency do that? I mean, what sort of needs to be in place for that? Sure. So, I mean, you can currently at Montgomery County, um, myself and my Sergeant Leslie McCauley, who is um, a frequent guest on your program, are under the Montgomery County Bloodstain Accreditation, um, under the, the accreditation. That is something where it's, you develop a standard operating procedure and, you know, that that's not something that you just have to, you know, sit down and create. I mean, there are um, guidelines that are set forth by the um, Bloodstain Subcommittee of the OSAC, which is the Organization of Scientific Area Committees, and it kind of gives you a guideline of what your SOP should look like. Um, you know, there I leaned on my colleagues on who had established SOPs and asked if I could look at theirs. Um, and that, that's one thing that I found with, you know, especially with bloodstained people is, you know, they're everyone's willing to help everybody else. And so I um, got a couple SOPs that I was able to look at, and then I developed. Montgomery County's SOP based on how we do the things that we do, staying within the guidelines set forth by the Bloodstain OSAC group. Um, and then I developed a training manual. Um, and again, that was, um, I took a lot of my colleagues' programs on how they were training and then um, thought about what I wish that I, you know, kind of the steps that I wish that, that someone would have put me through um, instead of trying to navigate you know, on my own way. Right. And so I built a training program. So those are two components that you have to have in place. Um, there are really two accrediting bodies. Um, ANAB is one, um, A2LA is another one. And so they follow the like international standards. So, um, you know, in, in international standards or accreditation, it doesn't just, it's not just for forensics, right? Forensics is such a small part of accreditation. Right. You know, it, it's a huge, you know, like um, construction companies, like people building skyscrapers, people that are, you know, in the food industry, right? They are all accredited to, you know, build buildings and build bridges and build stuff. And so forensics is really, really small, a small component of, of what they do, but the standards are laid out that, you know, says how you're going to deal with your quality management, how you're going to deal with, you know, certain, you know, if there is a um, corrective action, like if if I went out to a scene and used the wrong chemical, right, and that wasn't a chemical designed for blood stain, okay, then that could be a corrective action, right? It's like, hey, you used the wrong chemical, and um, you know, and then it's like, okay, how are we going to deal with that? You know, do we have to pull you off casework and send you back to training? And, you know, so and all of that is documented. And so then when you have all of that in place, then you, you know, reach out to this accrediting body, and then they find someone that is familiar or a subject matter expert in your discipline. And our assessor came from California from the DOJ, okay. and they came in and he looked at all of our standards and then looked at all of our work and made sure that 
what we're like we have written what we say we do but then make sure that we're actually doing what we say and we're doing it the way that we say we're going to do it so how long is the process i mean obviously the, the process of you creating your own policies or and it's very common i think in and not just police work i think to pretty much any industry to network with other other entities that do the same thing and say hey do you have a policy on this you have a policy on that and then sort of tweak it to, to meet your needs. And I think that's very common. But so obviously writing the SOP and putting those things in place, that sort of depends on how long that takes you. But once you have that, then what's, what's sort of the time frame, the process of, of them sending someone in, them overlooking at what you're doing? So, and that, that is all going to be, you know, we were very blessed. I, you know, I, I've been at, Montgomery County for 22 years it and I'm amazed at the support that we have had you know and that we continue to have I've been in the crime lab now um, over 18 years and you know I've talked to other crime scene investigators and other you know both big and small and it seems like the more people that we talk to the more I realized how richly blessed we are to be not only you know in Texas but in Montgomery County, but to work for an agency like the Sheriff's Office that, you know, has gives you the support you need. Always right. given us abundance of support, you know, and that goes from you know the top down, and um, and so I had the blessing of you know my entire chain to expedite the accreditation process in bloodstain. Um, you know, I was able to kind of put my, you know, other than my call-out schedule, but put my casework aside to focus on on um, pursuing accreditation. And it took us right at like 11 and a half months from, you know, and we already had a working SOP. So that wasn't even, you know, that was just kind of tweaking the SOP, coming up with a training manual, um, making sure that all of that coincided with our quality manual, coming up with the proper forms that we were needed, that that the accreditation standard said we had to have um, to deal with some of these issues. And so it was about 11, 11 and a half months. So now when they come in for their first review, obviously uh, I, I imagine no one just hits it out of the ballpark, you know, first thing. They have a couple things they tell you that could be better or you could tweak or whatever. Is there like a time frame that they come in and say, hey, we'll be – be back in a week. We'll be back in six months. What's what do they sort of do on that? So I'm I'm not sure because we actually did um, exceed all of our. You our, met all the stuff when it came in. Yep, and so. Um, so we knew after three days that we after so the assessment lasted three days, but we knew at the conclusion of our three days that they did not find any um, any issues that needed to be addressed. So is, is that it at that point that poof, you're accredited or is there like they have to go back and, and take what they've found to others or how does that work? Sure. So they, the assessors then, um, you know, like made their final report. That report was submitted to the accrediting body. So ANAB. And then it takes about, I think it took us about five weeks to get our official you know, notice or certification or accreditation. Uh, yep. And then they notify the Texas Forensic Science Commission that we have been accredited in bloodstain pattern analysis. Um, and then we send 
all of our documents to the Forensic Science Commission. So what's the follow-up from that? Obviously, they don't let you just take off and run and never check on you again. Sure. So, so they, they um, for the next four years, they are going to come and they, you know, they are going to look at um, to make sure we're still following the standards. They're going to look at my casework and make sure that, that it's going through all the, you know, the peer review process, the administrative review process, that it's being, you know, that we are storing it, um, you know, on our server, all of those things, um, you know, and so they are, they're going to come back and they're going to make sure that, that everything that we did in, you know, 2018, that we still were doing it in 2019, that we're still going to be doing it, you know, in 2020. Um, and then after them coming every year for four years, then they come every other year. So now, obviously things changed. I mean, in, in Bloodstain, I mean, obviously that's why you have the um, different organizations and, and such. So as things change, who changes those standards? Is it is it the OSEC? Is it the uh, Text Forensic Commission that says, hey, you now need to do this, or you need to change it to this, and then you would update to maintain your accreditation? So the, the OSAC is going to be the best resource for changing standards or changing best practices. Um, it is encouraged by the Forensic Science Commission to follow OSAC standards. Most people that, that in Texas, most people that come from an accredited agency, regardless of what discipline it's in, whether it's DNA, firearms, you know, um, crime scene, blood stain, there are people that are plugged in to those respective OSAC groups. So, um, like for me, I am um, a member of the Bloodstain Subcommittee with OSAC. So I'm there working on how we do things. Okay. Right. Um, so then it's really easy for me to come back and say, okay, hey, we're going to, instead of using this term, now we're going to use this term, or we're going to switch out our terminology, or, you know, we're going to... Um, you know, if there is an uncertainty of measurement, you know, on the scan data, we're going to address that. Um, so that that's easy to come back and go, hey, we need to, you know, I get with my quality team and say, hey, we need to make an update to the bloodstain SOP, you know, and so then that is documented that those changes were made and then that goes through um, the review process so that when the accrediting body comes back, right, they can see these are the changes that we made to our manual. This is why we made them. Here is the updated change. So I know most accreditations uh, cost money. Okay? Sure. Uh, so do you know the cost associated with, with the accreditation y'all got and what the yearly or I guess quarterly, those type of costs associated? I, I know that it comes um, as far as the, you know, what our, what we wrote the check for. I, I don't, and I've never inquired. Right. Um, I do know that, you know, to accredit five bloodstain pattern analysts at, you know, at an agency, it comes with a price tag. You know, if, if that's the only thing they're coming there to accredit, right. um, you know, and you've got five analysts, it runs about $40,000. Okay. And then 
Now that's the initial assessment. Do you know yes. any follow-up cost to that? Sure. So I, I know that there it's like a maintenance contract right. that, right. Um, and I, I think that that is substantially less, um, like you know, around five thousand dollars or less. Right. Um, that's very common with with any type of accreditation. There's the initial setup cost, and then there's the follow-up and. I think it's pretty much standard of, of anything with uh, computer software. We always pay like this big chunk up front. Yep. And then the maintenance cost, which slowly piles up, but it's not as much. Sure. Well, and we, we went through the same thing with our scanner, right? The scanner, you know, was expensive, right? Because of the technology that um, I think we got our scanner in 2007, 2008. 2008, I think. Yep. Um, and it, it was a pretty hefty yeah, upfront right. cost. It was like 270000 for everything up front. And it was still, I, I won't say very new. It, I know them and Pharaoh were still sort of the two dogs in, in the in the fight. Sure. Um, and I know it's progressed massively since then. I don't know if the cost has gone down or not, but... Uh, it has. I mean, I think that the now they have, you know, like the Pharaoh scanner was quite a bit smaller than right. the big Leica, you know, the... The 360 thing. Yeah, yeah. the Leica machine, um, it's heavy and it's big, and, and the Faro machine's always been a little bit more lightweight and not so cumbersome. Um, you know, what you give up with going, you know... Um, and it, it's kind of like the Ford and Chevy debate, right? Like, the people that are diehard die Ford people right. have... You know, they're going to follow that no matter all what, the right? reasons yeah. why Ford is better, and then you got the Chevrolet people that go, well, no, 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 and and so I think the same happens with Leica and, and Faro that, you know, Leica says that they are better on this front, where Faro counters that with, with why they might be um, better than Leica. So, you know, I, I think both are phenomenal products. They both do exactly what, you know, anyone would need right. them to do especially when it comes to, you know, mapping crime scenes. And, and, you know, I think that over 300, you know, 300 feet or 100 yards that the Leica is accurate to, you know, like a fraction, like like a couple millimeters, right. which isn't even the size of a pencil eraser. Right. You know, that, that is better than you're ever going to do with a tape measure, you know, or trying to roll it with the, the right. measurement wheel. So, um its precision is amazing, and that's, you know, precision in 360 degrees. And um, so, I mean, I think that, that both products are absolutely incredible. Um, so speaking of both those products, I know we use both in the, in the crime scene reconstruction, right? So uh, sort of to a point switching gears, the, the other conference, which was very recent, you had in March in Reno, right on the tail end of you should not be traveling anywhere uh, trip. Sure. And uh, so what's happening in crime scene reconstruction? What are the, what's the big news out of that conference? Man, so that was a phenomenal conference. The probably um, the best content of any conference I've been to in 18 and a half years. Um, the... The um, coordinators did a phenomenal job at putting together a pretty, like a, a really nice lineup. Um, the focus this year really kind of, um, the underlying kind of message or the underlying focus 
was about um, trauma, like post-traumatic, not PTSD per se, but like mental health in emotional impact to the investigator. Yep. And on, you know, doing this kind of work where, you know, for example, for me, you know, 18 and a half years of responding to violent death scenes um, where you are, you know, in those scenes for extended amounts of time. And, you know, from that, you come back to the office, you log your evidence, you put your pictures in, and then you go to your next violent death scene. And so the, there was a lot of presentations on, you know, just managing your emotional health and making sure that after you have given a career right. to a community or an agency, that when you finally do reach the, the day that you can retire, that you're emotionally healthy to then enjoy your retirement and that you don't become reclusive or an alcoholic or, you know, start battling the, you know, some of this, this stress that you have had to deal with over a prolonged period of time. Um, and so there were a lot of people that spoke about, you know, that, that had different presentations on, um, like the, a representative from the FBI out of the Denver field office, as well as the, the agent with the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, CBI. Um, they were two of the folks that did the Chris Watts case, which is the husband that killed his wife and two young daughters, um, and then took them out to the oil field. Um, and so they talked about that investigation on how they handled interviewing Chris Watts. Um, they showed their interview techniques, which is something that I really am not familiar with at all um, because we have you guys that, right. that handle that aspect. So um, it was interesting to me to see that. But more importantly, they spoke about how it affected them personally and how they dealt with, you know, after that, that eight days that they worked that case almost nonstop, that now it's like, okay, he's in jail. The investigation is done. Now we have to go home and, you know, with our wife and our kids and, and we have to function and we have to like, you know, and, and you sit there and you lament and you, you know, it's not like you can just put that stuff on the shelf and go, okay, next chapter. You know, that, that, that's baggage, right? It's like it's your backpack that you have all of these cases and all of these and, images and I, in. I, I think it's um, a very common topic right now. I mean, not just in, in crime scene and law enforcement in general, just the, the things that we see, the things that we do, the, the stresses that we get put under over a extended period of time. And the one thing I've always found interesting, I guess, about that and, and the work we've done, I know we've had many scenes together that – what I've found is there's certain scenes we'll go to that uh, as a detective investigator that it may bother me and it may not bother you. And then we go to a different scene and there's something about that one that bothers you. It doesn't bother me. It's, and I, I don't want to blow it off as far as saying it doesn't bother you. Right. I mean, seeing some of the things we see, you know, yes, it's, it's disturbing. It's, it's upsetting. It's, it's not normal. And you sort of accept that going into this 
line of work, right? But there's others that, I mean, truly bother you. And, and I mean, I know of a certain case with you that uh, you have really been impacted by and had to deal with and stuff. And, and uh, you know, same with uh, me along the way. And, and I think one of the biggest support that we find, and luckily we have those great relationships uh, and friendships to actually still have those conversations, right? That I know there's many times that you have to take a break from what you're doing um, and go sit in someone's office and go have that conversation of, hey, this really bothered me. And the uh, in the past, uh, I think that was sort of looked at as like a weakness, like, well, maybe you shouldn't do this anymore. Sure. It's like It's like, well, no, in general, I love my job, but this one really got to me, you know, and I need to tell someone about that. And sometimes it's just talking to your peers that sort of helps with that. And sometimes it requires you to take that a little bit further. And I think that I've seen over the past probably five years a switch to where that's more accepted. And I, I see that at a lot of conferences or classes or even specific classes talking about just PTSD and officers, investigators, that type of thing. So uh, I think it's becoming more common. Well, and I, I think, and like what you said, right, when we first got into this, it was like, how hard can you be? And how how hard charging can you be? How hard can you go? And then if you were always afraid that if you showed any kind of weakness, you were going to be taken away from what you dearly loved, right? Because the whole reason that we still do what we do is because we, you know, like for me, I still believe what I do makes a difference. And right. there's so many, you know, different divisions that, you know, sometimes I hear it's like, we're not making a difference. You know, we're not making a difference here. We're not, you know, we're not ever going to cure people driving drunk, right? Like it doesn't matter how much public service announcements we put out, people still are going to drink and get behind the wheel. And so then that frustrates people because it's like, Holly, what else could we do? Right. And so I still feel like with, you know, the opportunities I've been given that I can go out there and I can make a difference and I can be a voice for the victims. And that comes at a cost, right? Because it's like, you know, you then continue to see some stuff that people, normal people should not have to see. Right. And, you know, it's like, and, and you're right, just in the last five years, people are now, you know, we are more aware to, to look at our coworkers and go, hey, are you okay? Like you're, you know, you are not behaving how I would expect you to behave. Like, you know, like, now it's Wednesday, we had a bad scene last week, but now you are withdrawing or you are really edgy or why are you snapping? You know, why are you just very short? What's happening with you, right? And, and being a good teammate and being a good, you know, coworker and being, you know, compassionate and, and going, hey, let's, let's shut the door, let's sit down and talk. You know, and, and sometimes all it, like what you said, all it takes is for, you know, someone to notice, you know, like sometimes that's the biggest thing is, hey, wow, someone actually notices that I'm not okay. Or sometimes just talking to your coworker is not enough, right? And then it's like, hey, um, I appreciate you talking to me, but, you know. Yeah, we got to get you a little bit further. Yeah, and you know what? I'll, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll go with you. I'll sit in the waiting room and. And, you know, and so that's what I, what was amazing about the, sitting in that presentation about Chris Watts is because one agent helped another agent and said, you know what, I made you an appointment, I'm driving you to it because you are not okay. 
and I can see it and everyone around you can see it, even if you can't see it. And, you know, so it's, I think that we, you know, like the old salty detectives, okay? Nothing bothers me. Nothing bothers me, right? Like we are eventually going to, to fix that where, um, you know, I think that, that it will become where we're the old salties and the people that come after us, we, we can help them manage, you know, that, you know what, this. More accepting of the, the trauma. And it the, is. The need of what's happening. You know, and, and having administrators who also encourage good mental health, right? Because my daughter, you know, she needs, when, when I reach retirement, you know, I don't want her to go, oh, no, you know, let me call my mom and see where she's at because, you know, she might be, you know, on the edge, right? And so she deserves, I mean, she has had to sacrifice for her 12 years dealing with a mom who gets called out in the middle of the night, who has to leave birthday parties, has to leave during opening presents on Christmas morning because the phone rings. And so she has also sacrificed. So she deserves to have the best mom the most mentally healthy mom when, you know, I get to retire and, you know, not be afraid to leave, you know, her kids with grandma because she doesn't know what to expect from grandma. Right. And we've always joked about that. Our kids have not had a normal childhood. It's just accepting. I mean, I always tell the story of me hadn't being called out one time and, and my daughter asked me, says, well, dad, where are you going? I said, I gotta go dig up a, a dead body. She's like, can I come help? No, no, you can't come help. You, you gotta stay home. Right. But, uh, so speaking of you making a change, making a difference, so you also just recently got back from Vietnam, yes? I so, did get back from Vietnam. So how did you end up in Vietnam, and, and what exactly were you doing there helping? Was it their police force? Did, did they separate? Do they have, like, a separate police force versus federal, or how's that So they do. They, they have a – so I was in Hanoi, which is northern. So even though Vietnam is now one country – Um, there's still a north and a south. Um, And so Hanoi is in the northern part of Vietnam, um, where Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh City, is in southern Vietnam. Um, But Hanoi is their their capital of the country. Um, And so I had the opportunity to teach a a three-day crime scene processing course for the Vietnamese Ministry of Securities, which is their national police. Okay, so that'd be like the equivalent of our FBI type of thing? Correct, yes. Okay. And so now they still have local police forces, or that is their police force? So Hanoi has a city police, so the Hanoi Police Department. Um, and then you know, Hanoi, the city of Hanoi has about 15 million people in the city. Okay, wow. Yeah, it's huge. Um, which, surprisingly, they have zero traffic issues because most people ride scooters and so we should just go to scooters well you know it made me think that the traffic jams from conroe to houston which you know you could make that that trip in like 25 minutes but if you try to go at 7 a.m to houston it's going to take you an hour and a half they are able to move a lot of people very quickly because you have people on scooters, and it may be, you know, two people, they're doubled up. Um, I saw a 
guy on a scooter transporting like the salon chair with the sink. So the sink <laughs> and the recliner that was on the back of his scooter and he was transporting that. I saw a lady, she had three ladders, like full, like 10 foot ladders on each side of the scooter. And she was going somewhere transporting these ladders. I saw um, like three huge boxes, like toilet paper boxes, and they were stacked up and bungee corded down. And those so were. You may have a solution for mass transit. That's I, you know, it, it works. <laughs> I mean, they drive the scooters in the rain. And I'm thinking, if you put all of these people into like a SUV, right? So you have one person in an SUV and one person in an SUV, you have Houston traffic. You put all of these people on a scooter, you're in Houston in 20 minutes. So, now I know you do not speak Vietnamese, so how'd that end up for you? So, I don't speak Vietnamese, <laughs> and it's not something that you really just go on to, you know, Duolingo and start. Google Translate or any of those? Yeah, um, and Google Translate has a little difficulty sometimes um, with, with converting English to Vietnamese, um, I know that one of my students had sent me a message and um, said something about my my flight, but it came as my flying ship. Okay. So, I, I mean, I understood what he was talking about. But, um, you know, they are, they did a really good job at, they understand and speak English pretty good, actually, um, for really, you know, not leaving their country. They don't have a lot of opportunity to travel outside of their country. Um, their, their economy is um, not very good. And so um, it's very expensive for them to go anywhere. So most of their training is in country and they um, are fortunate when people come in to train. So things so what, like- So what'd they get for three days? So, so what'd, you, what'd you cram in their heads for three days of training? So they purchased three crime scene trucks for uh, the ministry, um, similar to what we have. Um, it came, it was assembled in a plant in Turkey, um, but it's kind of, it's a Ford F-250, uh, kind of like a box van right. um, that has a, a laboratory. It's got, you know, the, the storage bins. Um, it, it's very nice. And then they bought crime scene equipment to go in these trucks. So what they were wanting was training on the crime scene kits that they bought. Um, fortunately for me, we use most all of that same equipment. So like their trajectory kit that they bought, we have the exact same trajectory kit. So my training was just on the different kits that they bought, how to use those kits, how it's um, applicable to, you know, like, here's this, this is where you use it in the scene, this is where I have found that this works most um, efficiently and effectively. So that's kind of how we, the class was laid out. Everything went through a translator, and the translator did not have a foundation in forensics. That may so, be a problem. <laughs> so it was tough for her on the first day to kind of understand what I was trying to say and then how to translate that into Vietnamese. Um, after about day one, I realized that I had some English-speaking people that, that were students. Had some forensic knowledge? That were very much had forensic knowledge. And so they kind of stepped in to kind of bridge the gap between what the translator was, you know, and she was great. She, like, she was frustrated. I was frustrated, you know, for the first half of the day. Um, 
because I'm trying to, to explain. And then she's like, I don't know how to say that. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a disaster. But um, you know what? They, they were troopers. They, you know, they endured it. I thought they were never going to come back. Like, they are not going to come back tomorrow. They did. They were, they were awesome. And then, you know, we learned how to speak to each other with, you know, sign language. And, and they would let me know, you know, just with their facial expressions on whether they were understanding it or if they were confused. And, and so at the end of the three days... Um, you know, it really was just amazing. We made certificates, right? So that's something that, you know, we, we obviously take for granted. You know, you go to a conference, you get a certificate. Right. You know, you take a 40-hour blood stain class, you get a certificate, you're so excited, you, like, pose with the instructor. They had never been given certificates for any training. And so it was... Like a graduation. It like was like thing. graduating from a university. I mean, they set up this pomp and circumstance up on the stage. They came up. They had, you know, they wanted pictures. They had a photographer that came in to take these these certificate pictures. And, um, you know, they were very proud of their, their certificate. So, so how many students did you have? So there were 23 um, in the beginning, but that included their, you know, their um, director and that, um, but 20 practitioners. So how many are there throughout, I guess, Vietnam that, that would be called to do this service? So that is something that's interesting um, in that because of their government, um, they are not very forthcoming with any kind of information. And okay. so what I found was... Um, I identified a student in the class that seemed like he was the guy that was allowed to give you some information, correspond with me, um, and that pretty much everybody else was not allowed to interact. Um, you know, they were very honest. They said, you know, we, because of who you are and where you're from, we're not telling you a whole lot. <laughs> we're not really um, teammates, we're not really colleagues. Now, aside from your government and my government, on a personal side, like, we're going to be friends forever. Right. However, when it comes to who you are in your position and who we are in our position, that, that's not going to be a thing, um, which is very sad to me because, you know, I... The missed opportunities. Well, right. I want to be able to, for them to come to the IABPA, right, right, so that they can network, which is another thing. Yes, you know, there is networking at conferences. Um, but it, it just is going to help them, you know, because they're very insulary right now and they don't have a lot of interaction with anybody else. And so how do we know what they're doing is actually correct and then they're not doing bad science? Um, right. You know, how do we know that the training that they're getting is actually quality training? And I'm probably not the one to be able to assess that because they're not going to share that with me. But if they could come to the conference, they could, they could network with people that, you know, like we have a lot of, of people come from South Korea. We have a lot of people that come from Singapore. And so they very much could network with those folks and at least have that kind of connection to see what they're doing and the research that's coming out of those countries and not necessarily have to interact with, 
you know, Americans. Um, they could interact with, with other countries that are more aligned with, with their government. Um, so that's my hope. My hope is that I'm going to find, or that we, the IBPA, is going to find a way to have a, like a scholarship. Um, bring someone from other to, countries in. To bring them over and, you know, at least give them the opportunity because right now they don't have an opportunity to travel because of how expensive it is for them. Sure. So if that was something that we could have a scholarship for countries like Laos and Thailand and and that aren't um, economically... Able to do those things. Right. Correct. Um, and so I, I, I'm very hopeful that that training course is not the last time that I see my new friends because, you know, I really think that we have so much participation around the globe from a lot of other countries and a lot of other um, continents that it's very sad that they may not have that opportunity. Well, and I appreciate you sharing what you, what you did over there, and, and hopefully they will come around. So um, as we wrap up, I just want to touch on something. It's probably been, um, I guess, April of last year that I came up with the idea to uh, to bring this show forward, and, and with the help of Dick, our producer, uh, uh, we have made this possible. Uh, it started about in June, and, and now it's being listened to in, in 13 different countries uh, on many podcast providers. Um you know, along with uh, being broadcast here in Conroe on FM 104.5, 106.1, our Lone Star Radio. I know they still have spots available. If there's an idea for a show that you would like, uh, you can always reach out to the studio here at LSCRS, which is Lone Star Conroe Radio Studios, uh, lscrstudios at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach out to Dick. He can help you set that up if that's something you're looking for. If you have something that you'd like to hear on this show or if you'd like to sponsor the show you can contact me at dan at crimescenetoday.com we appreciate you listening we look forward to having you in the future